We're back in John's Gospel this morning. It's been several, well, a couple of months since we've been here. Uh, And we're turning our attention this morning to John chapter 15. And this morning I'll read the first 11 verses. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are none on the back table. I'm sorry about that. But there's a there's a table back there with the offering box. You can you can make your way back there and grab a Bible underneath there. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, go there after the service or right now, whenever is convenient for you. Pick it up. Take that home. That's our gift to you this morning. There's no greater gift that we can give you than the gift of God's words. These are the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded, preserved through the Holy Spirit for our great benefit here even this morning. And as I read these words, they come to us, John 15, 1 through 11, come to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ were here with us this morning. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle John, recording the words of Jesus, writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Ancient Greek philosopher, poet, Pindar, who lived some 500 years before Jesus, once likened a man to a tree. And it wasn't common, there wasn't uncommon in the ancient world to have a, a, a man or an individual, a person likened to some kind of plant. And Pindar specifically said that man was subject to a lot of different things, a lot of things, uh, influences around him. Like, what is the soil like? Is there enough water for the tree? What about sunlight? And one thing that Pindar thought, and as he wrote his poetry and as he philosophized, one thing that he thought is that a man could, be, be, could move away from being reliant on outside influences, on outside sources for life, and not be reliant on those things at all. That reason could provide everything that that man needed. King David, about 500 years before Pindar, in the Psalms, also compares a man to a tree. In Psalm 1, 1 through 3, at the very beginning of the Psalms, he writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. King David's understanding of a man and what he needs in this life is very different from that of of Pindar. For Pindar, what is needed most is a man uh, who has an internal ascension to perfect reason. But for David, what is needed is a reliance on God's word, something outside of the person, something that is not determined internally, but entirely externally. The prophet Jeremiah picks up on the tree metaphor also. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The tree that bears fruit, the tree that flourishes, according to to Jeremiah, is the tree that uh, that trusts in the Lord, the man who trusts in the Lord and what the Lord says to be true. And Jeremiah doesn't stop there. And in case any, there are any of those who think that a man can flourish and bear fruit uh, from some internal reliance, Jeremiah then says in verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart here is the person's core. It's the command center. It's who they are. It represents the, the, the center of that individual. So the question is, do you want to flourish or do you want to bear fruit? And if you look internally, according to Jeremiah, if you look internally into your heart, you're going to find disease and decay. And the fruit that you bear will be diseased and will be decayed. Because what you find inside is desperately sick. So what's the solution? To look externally. To look outside yourself. If you look externally, the fruit you bear will be healthy because it is fed from a healthy source. It is fed from God's Word. In our passage this morning, more is revealed about these ideas. More is revealed about the truth that's contained in the passage at the beginning of the Psalms and in Jeremiah chapter 17. How does this external source of nourishment and fruit-bearing work? And again, it's been a little while since we've been in John's gospel. So where Jesus is, these words here are all the words of Jesus. You'll see a quotation mark, or if you have a red letter Bible, you'll see all these words in red. Jesus and his disciples have just finished up the eating of the Last Supper. And if you go back up the page to verse 31 in chapter 14, Jesus ends chapter 14 by saying, rise, let us go from here. They're getting up. They're now on the move. Jesus is just hours away from being tried and being crucified. Jesus is just hours away from defeating sin and death and rising from the dead. As they leave the upper room, Jesus tells them to rise, let us go from here. And then he continues to give them instruction on, as they make their way out. And right before they leave the upper room, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, 
What has just transpired in the upper room at the Last Supper is that Judas has left the supper to go betray him, although the disciples don't know this yet. He's told Peter that Peter will in fact deny him three times. And he's told the disciples that he is going away from them. So here we are, and the situation in this teaching is that Jesus needs to give these men who are now in a serious state of turmoil. One of them has walked out of the room. One of them has been told directly to his face that he will deny him three times. And the rest of them know that Jesus is leaving. They're not quite sure of the details yet, but Jesus is going. They need peace spoken to them. And so this teaching is aimed as a comfort to hearts that are in turmoil. That's the situation for what Jesus says here at the beginning of chapter 15. As we look at Jesus' words here in these first 11 verses in chapter 15, two characters are introduced to us right out of the gate. Exploring those two characters is what's going to guide our time together this morning. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And he says, my father is the vine dresser. Now, there's a third character that's introduced to us here in this passage, and that's the branches. That's us. But the two actors here are the vine and the vine dresser, the son and the father. So what I want to do is consider both of them, the actions that they take and all that Jesus teaches about these two characters and what about what it means for us. First, the vine. Jesus says right at the beginning of verse 1. Look at verse 1. I am the true vine. Now, right out of the gate, we need to remember what Jesus is doing whenever he makes one of these I am statements. He says, I am the true vine. And what he is doing is alluding to the fact that he is in fact God. This is the seventh and final I am statement that Jesus makes throughout John's gospel. I am the true vine is the last of these statements he makes. They're designed to show us Jesus' divinity. They're divine, they're, by making these statements, Jesus is saying, I am God. I am God. I am is the name that God reveals for himself to Moses from the burning bush. When Moses says, who is it that sends me? God says to him, I am. These statements show us that Jesus is God. And what follows in these I am statements, take for instance, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, or I am the resurrection in the life, or I am the way, the truth, and the life. What follows these I am statements are things that only can be fulfilled by God himself. None of these things is up for grabs. None of these things is an open seat for a political office. All of these things can only be handled and taken care of by God himself. So Jesus says, I am, cluing us into the fact that he is in fact God. And then he gives us an indication of a thing that only he can do and only God can do. And here Jesus says, I am the vine. And this is the seventh, again, and final I am statement. And what Jesus is saying by telling us that he is the vine, the big takeaway from Jesus saying, I am the true vine, is in short, that Jesus is the source of spiritual life. 
Jesus is the source of spiritual life. Apart from Jesus, you and I, we cannot have spiritual life. Apart from Jesus, we are, in fact, spiritually dead. And he says as much in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Right at the end. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, we cannot have spiritual life. And the indicator that a person has spiritual life is told to us clearly in this text as well. And it's that they bear fruit. Apart from Jesus, we're told, we can bear no fruit. He says in the first half of verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. We'll talk about more about fruit in a few minutes. But for now, I am the true vine. Jesus is saying, I am the source of spiritual life. It is through Jesus that we receive proper nourishment in order to bear fruit. It is through Jesus that we can be moved from spiritual death to spiritual life. It is through Jesus alone that these things come to us. Pindar missed the point. A person cannot be detached from an external source of life and have life. A person cannot be detached from an external source of life and have life. A, spirit, a person cannot be detached from an external source of light and bear fruit. King David and the prophet Jeremiah were, uh, were, onto the right, they were on the right track. They saw that fruit-bearing person must be connected to an external life source. They knew that that was God's word. Trusting and delighting in God's word. And now Jesus, God's word who has taken on flesh, who stands before his disciples now, reveals to them fully that he is the source of spiritual life. David and Jeremiah had, part- uh, had a partial picture. And now Jesus was revealing the full picture here to his disciples. Friends, you and I are the great beneficiaries of the full canon of Scripture that stands before us today. 66 books that shows us all of God's plan of redemption for his, for his people. 66 books that give us the whole picture, the entire picture. And Jesus, revealed here in John's Gospel, is the only source of spiritual life. If you read through the Old Testament and you're wondering, how, how does this happen? How does redemption, how does deliverance, how does new life, how does a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone come to a person? It is through the person of Jesus Christ and him alone. If you're here this morning and you think that you can have spiritual life in some other way than through Jesus, hear the words of Christ in verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're here this morning and you think that you can have spiritual life apart from the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus says you cannot. 
You can have no spiritual life apart from Jesus. Nothing you can do can earn spiritual life for you. You cannot give yourself spiritual CPR. Only one person has ever died and taken his life back up again, and that person is Jesus Christ, who says these words to us this morning. And if you're thinking to yourself, I don't, I don't have spiritual life, I don't know what that means, what do I do to get, get that spiritual life from Jesus? The answer is simple. Come to Jesus. Leave your sins and come to Jesus. You can't have it both ways. You can't have your sin and Jesus. Leave your sin and come to Jesus. It's not more complicated than that. Forsake your self-reliance. Forsake any external source of anything that you think will lead to happiness and joy and everlasting life. Come to Christ and trust in Christ alone. And if that's you this morning, I'd love to talk to you after congregational worship. Seek me out up front or I'll be back in the narthex. Come talk to me. I'd love to talk more about what this looks like. It's not complicated though, friend. Come to Christ. Leave your sin. Come to Christ. Jesus is the vine. He is the only true source of spiritual life. But also in verse 1, we meet the Father. And Jesus says, my Father is the vine dresser. And we learn then what the vine dresser does in verse 2. Two things that he does that we're told about. First, any branch that does not bear fruit, the vine dresser takes away. Any branch that, the vine, uh, that does not bear fruit, the vine dresser takes away. So, if there is no spiritual life in the branch, it is taken away. And Jesus says more about this in verse 6. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into fire, and burned. The statement by Jesus in verse 2 has been somewhat of a source of confusion at some points during church history. Because he says, every branch in me. Why would he say any branch that is in me? Does Jesus mean that there are branches that are desperately trying to draw from Jesus as the source of life, but aren't able to get, get it, and so they get thrown out? Does this mean that a person can lose salvation? And the answer is no, it's not. What Jesus is saying is that those who hang around Christians and do Christian-y things who might be church members, who look the part, and who talk the part, they look like a branch that's attached to the true vine. But they aren't. Their heart is far from God, and they have no spiritual life in them. And so the father, the vine dresser here, does the diligent work of looking closely at the branches and determining if it has life in it. And if it does not, then he removes it. The vine dresser removes it, and it's gathered for destruction. That sounds scary to you. It should incite a bit of fear and trembling in us. We need to ask the question, what do I need to have spiritual life in order that I would not be removed? The answer is the same as before. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ. Don't trust in your good works. 
Don't trust in your church going. Don't trust in your hard work or your kindness to your neighbor or your political positions. Don't trust in anything except for the person of Jesus Christ. You can have no spiritual life apart from Jesus Christ. And those who trust in Christ are joined to Him by faith. And there is no person who is joined to Him by faith who does not also have spiritual life. That one is inseparably joined to Christ in perfect union with Him. Those who are joined to Christ, the true vine, will never be removed. That is the hope of this passage. The hope of this passage is that all who abide in Christ will be with Christ for all eternity. So first, any branch that does not bear fruit, the vine dresser takes away. But second, we learn in verse 2 that every branch that does bear fruit, the vine dresser prunes. He ta- uh, in every branch that does, be- that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. This is a bit different. If you're reading this with your eye on the text and you're thinking to yourself, how, does, how, how is Jesus going to take this? So he says, if you don't bear fruit, you get removed. But if you do bear fruit, I think maybe in our hearts we might say to ourselves, okay, what comes next? What comes next is that he celebrates the fruit or that he picks the fruit and enjoys the fruit. But that's not what Jesus says. Look closely. What he says is that he prunes the branch. And he prunes the branch for a purpose. In order that the branch might bear more fruit. This is what you get when you see fruit. This is how you get more fruit when you see fruit. And I don't, I don't know much about plants, but I do know my wife pops the buds off her flowers in the spring so that the plant will be fuller with flowers. And when the father finds spiritual life in a person, because that person is joined to Christ, truly joined to Christ, he prunes that person. Pruning is a process that sounds painful because it is because it is but we're told that it results in more fruit and fruit in the life of the believer fruit in the life of the believer is intended to bring the father glory look at verse 8 by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. He prunes the branch in order that the branch might bear more fruit. And more fruit glorifies God because it shows His good work in the life of a believer. No one walks into God's garden and looks at the things that He is tending in His garden and thinks to themselves, This could be better. God is the perfect gardener. God brings about all of the fruit that he intends to on every branch. If you're in Christ, God will bring about all the fruit that he intends to on in your life. 
Brothers and sisters, have you been in a position, maybe even recently, maybe even this week, where you've thought to yourself, things are going pretty well in my Christian life. I'm feeling like things are going well. I've had a really great time in my devotional life. I've been in a really good position. I've had time and space to pray. The Holy Spirit is revealing me truth that I did not know about until now in God's Word. Only to have a lot of hardship hit you square in the jaw. What we learn here is that for those who are living according to God's word, living in simple obedience to the commands of Christ given to us in Scripture, God allows and even brings about actively hardship in our life in order that we might bear more fruit. And this is evidenced elsewhere in Scripture. James, the brother of Jesus, says it in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. Or the Apostle Paul picks up on it in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. He says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Father prunes us to make us more productive. He allows trials, difficulties, hardships, suffering, and all of the like to produce fruit in you in order that you might, in order that he might be glorified, in order that we might prove that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. And so when you're enduring things in the moment to moment of your day, you can be sure that God is using that very hardship, that very bit of suffering, that very trial to produce in you more fruit. Christians are sometimes taught, and I believe that many of you in this room have even been taught previously in your life that God doesn't want you ever to be uncomfortable. That God doesn't ever want you to endure difficult things. And we believe that. We want to believe that. We want to be left alone. We want to be convenienced and comfortable. And it most clearly is reflected in the way that we pray. We say, God, help this meeting to go smoothly. God, cause this person to understand my side of the story. God, take away the pain that I feel. But Jesus says it right here in our passage, verse 7. Right at the end of that verse, he says, Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What do we wish? What do we wish? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples that when we pray, we should pray 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And before Jesus tells his disciples in verse 7 of our passage to ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, he gives this qualifier. He says, if you abide in me and what? My words abide in you. Our wills and our words need to be conformed to the will and the word of God. God, help my life to be one of ease, but rather your will be done. And if you've prayed the prayer, your will be done, you can be sure that you're going to get smacked in the jaw, that the pruning is going to come. You found yourself immediately embroiled in difficulty, trial, and suffering, and then what, the, what is the response? The response is to rejoice! 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 The fruits will bear witness to the reality that you are Jesus' disciple and the Father will be glorified. And brothers and sisters, if you struggle to see your difficulty, the trial and the suffering as God sees it, see this, that he intends to produce fruit in you and in us as a church. What is that fruit? Again, we see it in Romans 5. Endurance, character, hope. And in James 1, steadfastness and maturity. And in both of these examples, we face difficulty, trial, and suffering with joy, knowing that the Father is the one who prunes us to produce this fruit in us. Or we think about Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, which describes the family, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. The fruit that the Father produces in us, the fruit that the Father prunes us in order to produce, is seen in godly character or in Christ-likeness. That can only be present in those who are joined to Christ. The fruit described in Romans chapter 5 and in James chapter 1, endurance, character, hope, steadfastness, maturity. The, the, the character described in Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, are on perfect display in the person of Jesus Christ. They were on perfect display when Jesus spoke these words to his disciples in John chapter 15, and they're on perfect display where he sits at his Father's right hand right now, ruling and reigning over all of all of creation. So it stands to reason that the fruit of Christ's likeness can only be present in those who are joined to Christ by faith, in those who are branches abiding in the vine. So, again, come to Christ. If you're outside of Christ, come to Christ. If you're in Christ, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Only in Him can you have spiritual life. If no fruit and no spiritual life is found, the Father will cut off that one for destruction. But where the Father finds spiritual life in us, there he will prune in order that he might be glorified by proving that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. So what should we take away from this passage? Three things this morning 
Consider three things with me in this. The first I said it a moment ago, rejoice. Rejoice. Just simply rejoice. Jesus tells us all of this in order that he, his joy may be in us and that our joy may be full. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Remember the disciples' position here. Remember that they are thinking to themselves, Jesus is leaving. This one who we've come to understand now is the Messiah, the one who is going to uh, save his people, deliver his people, the one who now we have even latched on to the reality that he is God, that he is the Word incarnate. We've begun to understand and conceptualize these things, and now he's telling us that he is going away. In the midst of this difficulty, Jesus tells them this, these things I have spoken to you that, your, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And when he's saying these things, Jesus knows himself that he is about to endure the most amount of suffering of any person in all of human history, just hours away from it. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 gives us a glimpse into what was going through Jesus' mind. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, the joy that Jesus brings to you, the joy that he gives, comes to us right through the cross. This joy that was set before Jesus is the joy that he gives to us. It is grace. He gifts it to us. It's it's yours. It belongs to you. Jesus endured the cross on our behalf. He endured it and despised its shame. And he did it for the joy. A joy so full that all who are in him can also have it. You know how joy is infectious when you walk into a room and you meet someone who is maybe naturally joyful or is experiencing great joy because of some triumph or some exciting event in their life. You know how that is infectious. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, now for all who are joined to him by faith, offers fullness of joy for all of eternity. And when the Father comes to prune you, rejoice. For the sake of the Father's glory, it is to show that you are truly his disciple. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says this. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Provided that we suffer with him. That we suffer with Christ. The joy set before him is now set before you, set before me. Romans 5 tells us to rejoice in our suffering. James 1 tells us to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Rejoice because Jesus, the true vine, has given you, you life and the Father has seen fit to maximize the fruit that will come through being attached to the source of life for his glory. Brothers and sisters, does it bring you joy to know that God the Father is going to great lengths to use you for his glory? Does it bring you great joy to know that the Father is 
using you and going to great lengths to produce fruit in you to use you for his glory. Are you indifferent to that? Or are you overwhelmed with gratitude that God would see fit to choose you for that purpose? Friends, let's rejoice. Second takeaway. Second takeaway is that there is no such thing as a believer who does not produce fruit. Friends, if you're here this morning, if you hang around church, if you hang around church people and consider yourself to be a Christian, but no godly character is being produced in you, if you're indifferent to godly character being produced in you, then hear me loud and clear. You need to consider if there is spiritual life in you. If you are really connected to the vine, which is Jesus. Those connected to the life source will show signs of life. I'm not here to say what's going on inside you. The Lord sees hearts, but friends, Jesus is clear that there is an external element to our Christian life. And if you saw what you thought to be an apple tree with no apples, and it was apple season, wouldn't you say to yourself, I thought that was an apple tree, but I guess not. Jesus tells us that our Christian life is not a private one. If we are made, and we are being made, more like Christ through the bearing of fruit and the pruning process, then it will show. If we are not, then it won't. The signs of life for those connected to the life source are evident. Christ-likeness, godly character, the fruit of the Spirit. These things are signs of spiritual life in the same way that breathing and a beating heart are signs of physical life. Final thing I want you to take away this morning. Those who are joined to Christ as their life source are loved by Christ. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you've probably sung Jesus loves me to your kids at some point or your grandkids. But if you thought about what you're singing, you're singing of a deep and unwavering commitment that Jesus has for his people. You're not singing about mere infatuation. You're not singing about mere affection, although those things are included. But Jesus loves you not because of anything you did or because you look pretty in the moonlight, but because he has covenanted with you, with each of us as part of his bride, the church. God has promised and he cannot lie. God has promised and he cannot lie. And when Jesus places his love on us, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. When Jesus places his love on us, it cannot be removed. We need to see love here less like mushy-gushy, hearts in the eyes, kissy kiss, but more of like a titanium-clad, unchangeable, indestructible commitment. And the evidence that Christ has loved us is that we keep his commands. So when you think of Jesus' love, think about covenant and commitment. Jesus, the King of the universe, Lord of all creation, is committed to you. That he will be your source of life for all of eternity. 
There will never be an interruption. There will never be a hiccup. There will never be a power outage. Because this commitment depends on him, it can never be broken. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus has joined you to himself, friends, hear the good news. There is spiritual life in you. There is visible fruit of godly character. Rejoice, the Father will prune you. And you are loved by Jesus Christ. And friends, you will never not be. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that communicates so clearly to us about the source of spiritual life. God, if there are men and women, boys and girls in this room this morning who are not connected to the source of spiritual life, Jesus Christ, God, would you change hearts? God, would you bring men and women to Jesus? Would they trust in him exclusively for the forgiveness of their sin? And for those of us who are joined to Christ by faith, God, we want to pray things that are according to your will. God, we know, we know that in our short-sighted, near-sightedness, God, we recognize that we don't like to be pruned. We don't like hardship and difficulty and trial and all of the things that come along with it. God, but we know that in Christ and when we have him as our source of life, that the fruit that you produce in our life is perfect. God, so we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, may our wills and our words now be conformed to your will and your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen.